So God is a redemptive God, and I wanted you to know that because we dive into a new series in the book of Exodus. Super excited. A lot of people don't uh, read the Old Testament much and don't understand it because it's confusing. However, it's necessary to understand uh, Jesus and how it all makes sense in the New Testament when he comes along, and especially true of an understanding of the book of Exodus and how God redeems his people. And so you start to see that. We'll look a little bit back in Genesis as we just introduced the book and turn in your Bible towards the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. Pretty easy to find after Genesis. And I'm going to read seven verses. That's all we're going to have time for today. And it's a great way to introduce. And you'll see we'll go back a little bit through Genesis in a small way of recap. But God is a redemptive God. You can read seven verses. It's not really diving a lot into the story of Exodus as much as it is getting us into it by way of understanding what has happened between the books and between this, this time frame. This is what it says in uh, Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Isaacar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. I want you to remember that number, 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. I want to pray. I want to just have you pray and just ask God to show his redemptive hand in your life this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for this book, your word, which is truth. Thank you for having the opportunity that we have together to study your word and to learn from it. And Father, I pray, especially as we journey through Exodus, that we would see that you are a God of redemption and how that is, is true today, not just because you led the children of Israel across the Red Sea and spared and saved them, but it was a plan that pointed towards Jesus and his redeeming of our lives now, today. That it's still offered for anyone in this room who has come here and, and not trusted that you could redeem whatever situation or whatever life they're living. And so, Father, I pray that they would know you, that I would know you as a redemptive God again, and that we would celebrate you for that. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. So hindsight is a gift, and it's typically like this. We see in 2020, when we look back and we see all the things that God has done. But as we enter into Exodus, we're kind of in that moment where I want you to be, and I want myself to be. As we're looking into this book, we need to understand like what, what has happened before as we understand what God is doing in the, the book of Exodus. And specifically, the people in Israel are caught in this time where they're unsure of what God is doing. He has made promises, but they're really unsure, which is not much different than you and I. You and I have very hard things in life. We have tragedy, we have suffering, we have sickness, and we ask God, why? Why is this my life right now? Why, why is this my child's life? Why is this my parents' life? I just talked to somebody last night about aging parents and just like a pretty young aging parent, but just being sick and like hard things that are real things. And we wonder, God, what are you going to do in all of this? Now, when we look back, we can see some ways that God has moved in our lives, but many of us live in a season that we're just unsure. Why isn't God present to redeem me and deliver me in this? 
We can't see what's coming down the pipe. We want to know how it's all going to end. Most of us want to know that. We look ahead of our lives and we say, how does this all end? How does this all play out? Sometimes we don't get to know until we live through it. And so in this scene in the first seven verses of Exodus, what's going on in this story? And I want to have you, excuse me, insert yourself into whatever you need redemption for in your life right now. And I have two points. It's pretty simple this morning. Two points and then what to do about it. And my two points are this. It's really good news, but it's other, the other one is really hard news. The first one is this, is God is working a good plan built on his promises. That is great news. Here's the maybe different news, the second one. That plan rarely plays out like we think it's going to. And that'd be true of us in our life. God's working a good plan born of his promise, but it rarely, and I would say almost if ever, plays out the way that we think it's going to. So we'll look at those two things and then what we're going um, to do in response to those. Really good news, but also really hard news. So if you turn to your text and you're reading it there, you see that the first four verses of the book of Exodus start with listing the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so I read the names of the disciples, if you remember, last week, and here's the 12 tribes of Israel. So you guys are all set up for Bible trivia. Am I right? You guys should all know these 24 people by name. But you see these, these uh, 12 tribes, these sons of Jacob are broken up into um, the tribes of Israel. Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Gad, Asher, Benjamin, Joseph, and it mentions all of them. And so it says in verse 5 then, Joseph makes the 12th. It says, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now picking up from Genesis, we know Joseph's story. We're going to look back a little bit. His brothers sell him into slavery. He goes into prison for committing something he didn't do. His life is watching God's sovereign hand move over it. And then his brothers experience a famine, have to come back. He's in a place of high position. He's already in Egypt. It's there his brothers meet him and they seek his forgiveness. And he was used in God's plan to redeem his family. But there's 70 of them. Remember that number. And here's why. There's 70 of the the people that God mentions at the beginning of this story. Now, if you take those 12 people, the sons of Jacob, and you say they have wives, and some of them may be multiple wives, and we're not going to talk about that today, um, another time, but at least 24 people, and and then they have um, some, some kids. And so whatever that is, there's these 24, and then an additional 46, totaling 70. And I want you to hold on to that number for the sake of the two points today. 70 people start this story. It then goes on in verse 6 and says, Then Joseph died. So are we tracking with the math? What did we just do there? Okay, thank you. 69. Boom. Um, we're just down one, right? Joseph dies. And then, it, and then it goes on and says that all his brothers then die in that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. So at least that generation of people dies out. And there's this small number, maybe around 40 people, if you will, left. So now that number is from 70 down to 40. And this is what God is going to use. You'll see why that math is important. But then one of the, I call them the great butts of the Bible, B-U-T-S, not B-U-T-T-S. In verse 7, it says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Somehow this 40 people grew to a number, and I want to connect now that to the promise that God made to Abraham. 
So in 400 years of slavery, they're oppressed, and those people grow in number, and it uses this language of fruitful and, and increased and multiplied exceedingly strong. The land was filled. There's this idea that these people just exponentially grew from that small population of 40 over their 400 years of opposition and slavery. They just grow exceedingly strong and fruitful. Mind you, they're in the middle of oppression and slavery, the hardest, most bitter kind of life. Now, how do you get there? That's the question. We need to understand humanity and pain and brokenness. We've all experienced the effects of sin, and you simply can't even talk about what God is going to do in redemption until you understand the need for it. So here's what I want to do. I want to briefly, and I want to say briefly because I need to be brief, walk through the book of Genesis so we can just understand the picture Here is a story that I'm going to unfold of you of the most dysfunctional family on the planet. All right, so Thanksgiving's coming, Christmas is coming, your family is the most dysfunctional, right? This is way more dysfunctional. You're going to see how this plays out. So if you go back to Genesis 1-1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I'm going to rifle through these verses, so just, you'll just have to catch up, and and that's how that goes. Genesis 1-1, God, in the beginning, he creates, and then you skip ahead to um, chapter 2, and you learn that God created man in verse 7. And so he walks with him, and that's important. He walks with him in the garden in perfect fellowship. They are in communion and fellowship. Genesis 3 comes along, and sin enters the picture. They disobey, right? They were tempted towards what God says. You can't have that one. You can have anything. And we understand that in our hearts because God blesses. He, he gives us a lot of things, and then he puts parameters and guardrails. Our hearts always want to test that limit. We learn that at a very young age. And so sin against God breaks things permanently. You have to understand that. And they hide in the garden. Now, I need to stop here. They hide in the garden, it says in Genesis 3. They sin, they're broken, and then they hide. And then they are naked, and they learn that they are naked and that they are ashamed. Now, how long does it take a child to demonstrate that kind of behavior? If you have a child and you've had a young child... That's probably about two years old, right, when they write write all over your living room wall. And then where can you find them? Nowhere. Why? Because they're hiding somewhere. They know they've done something wrong. And so something in this heart knows I've done something wrong. That is not what I'm supposed to do. And sin and shame and all the guilt and weight of that. That's why young kids, you don't need to tell them, did you know that was a bad thing? I didn't want you to do that. No, they're already hiding. And so Adam is hiding in the garden. He knows that he's broken fellowship with God. Many of us know how that story continues. But Genesis 3 is the first time you see God start to unveil his plan and un, uh, or unveil his plan that he will step into reversing the effects of that sin and shame simply because man can't do it on his own. And so he talks about in Genesis 3 verse 15 this will be up there. He talks about his offspring man's offspring, as he dishes out curses to Adam, Eve, and Satan. And he says this, he says, I will put enmity, this is the curse toward Satan, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heels. The first time you see God say, you know what? You screwed thing up, sin entered the world, but I'm going to redeem that. It's the first time he says, out of the offspring of man, there's someone that will crush your head. Now we know that's pointing at Jesus. He will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. He will bring about redemption. 
And so right before God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, which wasn't really in their plans, of course, he demonstrates the first true act of grace. And Steve shared this in our Sunday school hour. In Genesis 3.21, he closed them. And the Lord God made Adam and for his wife garments of skins. Why? Because they were naked and ashamed. And so God, first animal sacrifice, pointing again, I'm going to step into this and unwind the effects of sin, and I'm going to redeem. And so he closed them. It's the first act of grace and sacrifice, aiming at Jesus in the scriptures, hinting that he will be the redeemer. This is all important. We're getting there. Fast forward here through Noah, the ark, the destruction, Babel, and then you get to Abraham. And in Abraham, God makes a covenant promise. And I want to read this in Genesis 15.1. So you can turn to Genesis 15 if you want. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. He didn't have any kids. And their heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, right? Challenge God's promise. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look, this is amazing. Look toward heaven and the number of the stars. If you are able to number them, which he was not. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. He gives this promise to Abram and says, this is what your offspring is going to look like. Now remember, Abram doesn't have any kids. He's remained childless. And so he's like really confused as you and I, I wanted to have you step into the story, are really confused. What are you doing at this moment, God, in my life? He continues on in verses, skip ahead to verse 12. As the sun was going down, this is part of the covenant that God made with him. A deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land, the Israelites, that is not theirs, and will be servants there, slaves, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So Abram's given this covenant. God puts him to sleep, does this thing where he weaves between the animals. You should read about it. It's pretty cool. And then he gives him this promise. This is what's going to happen. I'll get there, but it's not going to develop the way that you probably think it's going to develop. Remember, God's plan is built built from his promise. He then revisits the covenant with Abram in chapter 17, verses 1 through 8. He is 99 years old at the time. It's important. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. God changes his name, which is important in the scriptures. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, excuse me, God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. God gives his covenant to Abram and says, you're going to be a father of nations. I'm going to bless all people through you. And kings will come. This is like, you saw the word fruitful. You will multiply. Thinking back to Exodus 1 through 7, growing, increasing in number. Father of nations. Here's the problem though, God. 
Fathers need sons, right? Isaac's birth is then promised, and then we learn that Isaac is born in chapter 21. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. If you have kids and you feel old, try having a one-year-old when you are 100, all right? And so Abraham has Isaac, father of nations, right? you got to have a son, and he's got one. He had Ishmael previously through Hagar, but he's, he's got this one son. Now, it's interesting because if you go to chapter 22, Abraham is then tested, right? And it's interesting I mention this because the plan is threatened. He's got one son, father of nations. And then you get to chapter 22, and now God says, I want you to sacrifice your son. The plan is threatened. Again, this isn't playing out very good. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, I, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. You could insert a whole bunch of stuff. The, the one I've promised, the one that's going to bless the nations. Take him, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. (laughs) Right? Really? Think about your life right now. Like, God, can we just do a little, like, what is going on here? You learn later, Sarah dies in Genesis 23, 2. You know the rest of the story in Genesis 22. Maybe I should have shown you. Um, Isaac, Isaac lives. A ram is provided in the thicket. Sarah dies later. So his mom dies, went to mourn for her. Isaac then gets married in Genesis 24. I'm going fast, aren't I? And when he's 40, you learn in Genesis 24, 67, Abraham dies at the age of 175, the father of nations, with one son clinching a promissory note. That's what Abraham does. God gives him this covenant promise. He dies at 175 with one son, the father of nations, stars, sky, clinching a promissory note. Genesis 25, 7 and 8 say it this way. These are the days of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Remember, we live in real time, faith-tested here. Genesis 15, God makes a covenant promise, looking out 400 years of slavery is what's coming for these people. Isaac then goes on to have Jacob at age 60 in Genesis 25, and God reaffirms his covenant with Isaac, needs to remind him, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven will give your offspring all these lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandment, my statutes, and my law. My laws. So he says to Isaac, I want to reaffirm what I told your dad. This is going to happen. The father of nations. People will be multiplied. They'll grow. And so you learn from there, this dysfunction starts to happen in this family. Jacob swindles his brother's birthright. Isaac has Jacob. He swindles his birthright, lives a life on the run, cheating his way through, marries two women. You think you have problems with your brother-in-law and sister-in-law has 12 kids between them, meets God, wrestles with him, and then God reaffirms his covenant to Abraham with Jacob, the grandson, in verse 10 through 12 of Genesis 35. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Changes his name, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful, multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So he reaffirms his covenant with Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Now, Jacob had Joseph, and Joseph was Jacob's favorite. We know that from reading through Genesis. But Joseph, 
is thrown into a well by his brothers. What a nice Christmas gift. And left for dead, sold into slavery. He's then promoted, imprisoned, as I said, for something he doesn't do for 13 years, gets out and ends up saving his whole family. Great story of forgiveness. And that brings us to Genesis 50, the last chapter of the Bible, and verse 20. And Joseph speaks these words about God's plan to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God's promise has carried through even though the plan looked different. And then Joseph speaks this to his brothers in Genesis 50, the last couple verses here. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Michar, the sons of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Three, four now generations, and he's saying God had a promise. And he's going to redeem, and he's going to deliver. And this is passed on for generation to generation. And Joseph's about to die, and he says, Look at, looks at his brothers and say, God had a plan. Remember, he had a promise, and it's going to work itself out. This is how we get back to Exodus 1 about 260 years after Abraham gets the promise. 260 years. If you think you've waited for a long time, none of us have waited and will be able to wait that long in this lifetime. And Abraham gets his promise, four generations, and now how many people are there? There's 70, right? That generation dies, there's probably about 40 left. The father of nations. You'd think that'd be huge in number, right? 40 people strong. If you're keeping track of the math, that's a small country church right now. This is the promise that God made. I'm going to bless you. And friends, we hear these things and then we just see God do them different ways and we can't understand at the time how this is all being fleshed out. God is working a good plan built on his promise, but that plan rarely plays out like we think it's going to. We'll get into the the depths of the uh, oppression and opposition from Pharaoh in the next part of the the book in the dark days, but I, I want to just as we've covered a lot of ground, I want you to flip ahead to Exodus 12 briefly so you can see where we're going with the rest of our time here in verses 37 and 38. So why the number 70 was important. This is, this is the time of crossing the Red Sea. This is what the nation looks like from this time of slavery where they're oppressed and, and it's hard and bitter life. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth about six hundred thousand men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Six hundred thousand and that's just the men. So somehow in slavery they were fruitful, increased in number, grew in strength. Six hundred thousand men, if you include wives, that's another like, you know, 1.2 million and they say estimate with kids and all of that and kind of being fruitful and multiplying in the scriptures, it was kind of like a command to have kids, and it was like bad if you didn't have a lot of kids. About three million, two and a half to three million people are crossing the Red Sea. And now we start to see, right? Hindsight 2020, Father of Nations, kings will come. These people grew from 70 to about two and a half million, three million people as they cross the Red Sea. 
God's working a plan built on his promise. The plan rarely plays out like we think it's going to. And no one would have guessed that it would play out in slavery. Just like you and I would never think that it's going to play out the way it does in the hardships and chaos and confusion. Let me ask you a question. Was God less faithful, less good, less loving while the Israelites were in slavery? Was his plan and promise less perfect? Is it for us today? We would have to answer. We don't want to answer, but we'd have to say no. But it certainly feels like it is in my life. It's just different, right? It's windier. It's harder. It's more bitter. I don't like this ailment in my body. I don't like that I have this disease that's ravaging my body. I don't like that my heart aches all the time. I don't like that I feel lonely. I don't like that my kids are wandering. I don't like that my families are fractured. I don't like that my job is just like boring and monotonous and I didn't make much of my life. I don't like all that stuff. God, what are you doing? That's the question we ask against God's promise and his plan. But here's where I just want to land this plane this morning. I want you to know in these two points that I made today that God is good and he loves you and that the Bible is unveiling this point as it points to ultimate redemption in Jesus Christ. And we have to aim there. We have to remember God is good and he loves me despite how this is all working out in my life. And how, how can you do that? How do I do that? How do I, how do I remember that God is, is working and he's good and he loves me in the moment now? I offer you these three applications as I close my time up here this morning. The first one is this. You have to know your limitations, and many of us simply do not. That's why we read the scriptures and we fight against them so hard. It's because we think we're little gods. We think we know everything. We think we're demanded everything, especially in our country. We're entitled to know everything. This should not be happening to me. I shared this years ago, but I had a dear friend that we got to visit over the weekend and over Josiah's life anyways. He goes, you of all people, this should not be happening to. And I thought, why? Like, because I'm a pastor? Because, like, I'm supposed to have a better life? And we think these things, as Christians especially. We're supposed to be better than this. God would not, if he blesses us, he, our life shouldn't really look like this. You have to know your limitations. God's bigger. We read from Isaiah 55 intentionally, so as we were called to worship, his ways are higher. Most of us would not, and I, and I think I know this of you, most of us would not have written the story of our lives as they are today. Is that true? Most of us would not have written in, like some of you maybe like live in the dream or whatever that is, but if you take it all together, you would not have written it out the way that it's lived right now. You just wouldn't have. Most of us have had seasons of heartache, and in those seasons, we're thinking these things. Seriously, God, did you not? Think about Abraham, think about Isaac, Jacob. Just, did you not say this was what life was? Did you not promise? Have you not? Did you really? Did that just happen? We become Israelites. Have you pulled us out of Egypt to destroy us? That's the attitude at the end of that video you saw. They start complaining, and I think the narrator said, like, seriously, that's crazy. We want to go back to Egypt. We have to acknowledge our limitations. We don't know everything. God does. Hindsight's 2020, but that's hindsight. Now, I've tried to say this for a while now, and it's great news. When life isn't about you, it's great news. It really is, but some of us just like can't get over that. Life is about me and my entitlement, but when it's not, it's freeing. It's actually good. You know what? This is has to flesh itself out the way God wants. See, if you go back to the illustration about infants being naked and unashamed, you and I are tiny, but we're not insignificant. 
We are children, but we're not insignificant to God. We're weak, but we're protected by the most loving, powerful being in the universe. We're small, but our, we matter. our hearts matter to God, the heart of God. And God is actively inviting himself into our story, the big story here to redeem and restore what was broken in us in the fall. And he has invited you into that story in your ups and downs to navigate, but you have to know your limitations. God is sovereign over your life. And he is wanting you to experience joy, and he wants to be your joy. And you know what? This is the hard thing. Sometimes joy means surgery. Sometimes joy means loss. Sometimes joy means suffering. Sometimes joy means pain. You have to know your limitations in that. So that's the first thing that you have to know. The second thing is this. Read the Bible honestly to know God. Here's the deal with the Bible. Suffering, difficulty, loss should never surprise the believer. The Bible is filled with it. Unfortunately, what happens is we pull verses that have weightier, more theological meaning, and Christian bookstores love to do this. They slap it on a coffee mug. You know the plans I have for you to prosper you. Like, Jeremiah, I love that verse, but it's in context. We talked about that in Sunday school. And we struggle, and then we read the Bible, and then we're confused because, like, life is not supposed to be this way. God has planned for us to prosper. And then you read the Bible, and you're met with all these things. You know what? You got to pick up your cross. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be lonely. You're going to have suffering in your life. You're going to have trials. You're going to have to endure. You're going to have to persevere. You know, might even lose your life. You're going to be tempted all the time by sin. And we read the Bible, and I say, most of us don't read the Bible honestly, because why would we want to? Which is exactly why we say that before we open God's Word together, no matter how painful it is to our soul. Sometimes we go into the Scriptures, and we just don't like what it says. It's hard. Because it's, our attitude says we're going to be blessed, but Jesus comes along and says, in this world, you'll have trouble. <laughs> That's a good book, isn't it? It makes you want to open it up. And he says that, but take heart. I've overcome the world. The Bible has raw and difficult truths for us. It may mean we have to suffer. When you read in the Old Testament, especially in Lamentations, it may mean that you have to hold on this is going to be like earth-shattering for most of us in our culture. It might mean you have to wait. We can barely do that in grocery stores, right? I was just in a store, and I looked, and I like calculated the time. This person was going to like futz over their stuff in line. So I opened lane, and I was like, man, I hope I picked the right one. You, know, you do that too, right? Don't you jump out of line? Because we hate to wait. And you open up the Bible, and sometimes God says, you know what? You have to wait. We don't like that. Sometimes he says you have to surrender. You know what? You're holding on to this too tight, and I'm going to do something. I'm going to open your grip. I don't really like that, God. And then he says sometimes you have to suffer. If you're going to really know Jesus the way that I want you to know my son and what I did for you, you're going to have to suffer. I certainly don't want that, God. And then he says, you know what? You're going to have to trust me, even though you are lights out, can't see anything that's happening around you. It looks dim and dark, and you're just going to have to trust me. I know this is like looking like the worst of your time that you've ever experienced, and you're going to have to look at me and trust me in faith. Think back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, 13 years in prison. But it's the greatest news and story ever because of the promise and security of the word, isn't it? Not because it's a famous book, but because its author is great and powerful, and good, and loving. 
Which leads me to my third thing that you have to do, which we're going to do as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. You have to remember the cross. You see, the cross clears all our hurdles. This is what you say. This is what I say. I've sinned too much. God, you don't know my life. And the cross is there going, no, you haven't. You say, I don't need you, God. I don't need the cross. And the cross stands there saying, oh, yes, you absolutely do. Now, the story of redemption, reconciliation, this is what God is up to. God's working the plan, and you and I are caught up in that plan, whether we believe it or not, whether we're Christians or not. And God aims us at the cross and says, you need to look there because you absolutely need it. As sons and daughters, God sovereignly reigns and rules over our lives, both in joy and in sorrow, to detach our hands from the things of the world and give us what we really need, Him. And God's at work in all of our messes. And that's really what he's doing in our lives. All of our lives are a mess. If you came here today and your life is not a mess, like, I don't understand you. If you came here today to church because everybody, like, puts themselves together because that's what you do when you walk into church, that's not the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's not the kind of church we are. We come in here with a bunch of messes, broken pieces, and we come here because we say we need to look at the cross because God says we absolutely need it. And it's not easy, which is why God has given us community. And he's given us his word and he gives us the spirit. Because God is saying, I'm working a plan here. Hang on. Listen, friends, as I, as I close, there is no panic in God. There's not. N- not concerning your illness. There's just no panic or anxiety. None of your fears is God just waiting and going, man, I just didn't see that one coming. Not in in the election that's coming in. Oh, I love election season, by the way. Huh, says no one ever. God's no no panic, though, from God in watching our nation do what our nation is doing. And he's no panic in the future of our country as God just like, wow, no panic with your kids, the way they're growing up. He's like not, man, like, man, they're just like, I'm going to have to work something. No panic and anxiety in God. There's no fear in him or around those things because he is working a plan. And that plan is good. And that plan was born in a promise that was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And where we trust him and what we're going to trust him in now for whatever you need to trust him in, we trust him at the foot of the cross, remembering what he did for us by sending his son and Jesus shedding his blood so that you could be saved and restored. So if you came here today thinking that God is not a redemptive God, you need to look at your neighbor, look at yourself again, and say God is a redemptive God. Let's pray as the elders come up and we transition our time to remember the cross. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness. I thank you for all the stories that are represented here in this body this morning. I know many of them, many filled with heartache and struggle and doubt and anxiety and fear. And Father, I, like many, we put on a good face and a good show, but at the end of the day, we are in desperate need of grace. We need you. And Father, I am thankful for the story of Exodus in the Bible because it's a story of redemption. And it's a story that is windy and different than we thought it would be when you said to Abraham that he would... He would be blessed and the nations would be blessed through him. And Father, many of us have that same confusion in our life right now. 
We just don't know why it's playing out the way it is. But Father, I pray that we would know you today as a redemptive God that has a good plan born of your promise and that you will work it the way that you want to for your good and for your glory. May we remember that as we celebrate this meal together, as we remember the payment that Jesus made. And we pray these things in his wonderful name and all God's people said. We have an opportunity to do just that, to celebrate what God has done, and that's what this meal is. It's a memorial meal for believers that have acknowledged Christ as their Savior, who have placed their faith in him and said, you know what, I am going to trust Jesus for who he is, what he did, and I'm going to keep trusting in him. And, and that is why we do this together. That's why Jesus came along and he said, do this as often as you meet together. Why? Because you need to remember, I'm the plan. And so we aim at him our hearts. If you're not a member formally of Real Hope Communion, Community Church, you can take part in this communion if you have placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior. If you have not, you should let those elements pass. If you're not sure, you should let those elements pass. If you have, and yet your heart is full of sin and wandering, and you just don't know what that means right now, you're not sure you're trusting in God or believing him, you should let that pass. But for those of us that are thankful and remembering and want to use this time to just praise Jesus for his grace, we'll take these elements together. We'll pass them out, and you'll hold them till the end, and then we'll just celebrate. And so take this time in worship. I'm going to pray for us, and, and we'll be led together to receive these elements. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your grace. I pray that we would, as the scriptures say, use this time to examine our hearts, both in sin and wandering as we often rebel. And Father, being honest about that, but, but Father, I, I pray that that journey would lead us to just gratitude because we don't and can't earn your approval on our own. Father, we confess that we try to do that, but Jesus Christ came and said, you're never gonna get there unless you do it through me. And so Father, I pray that we would just be thankful for him and his gift of salvation. If there's one in this room that doesn't know you and has never trusted Christ by faith, they would do that this moment. We are in desperate need of your grace. And Father, I am very thankful that you've given it in Jesus. You are a redeemer. You are a hope giver. There is always hope, and I pray that you would instill that into our hearts right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to leave you this with Romans 5, and I pray that you would just take it out the door with you for encouragement. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. Have a blessed day. Walk out of here in great hope and encouragement. Go in peace, you are sent.